Well, what do you know? It's another podcast episode. And this one's going to be super fun. Hey, wait, they're actually all fun. Hey, folks, this is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast. Thank you for listening. And I got to give a shout out. I've been teasing this one. We actually have a pretty cool new brand that's hopped on board to the Disco Posse podcast train. So with that... I gotta remind you that not only are we sponsored and supported by the amazing folks at Veeam Software, vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, it's just that easy to get everything you need for your data protection needs. Head on over there, check out the really, really cool thing they're doing to make you an AWS superhero. Go check it out. But on top of that, weeha, new supporter alerts are fine friends. This is proudly brought to you by the folks at ExpressVPN. And I kind of dig this because I've been somebody that's been using a lot of different VPN software over the course of my career, mostly to be able to get consistency of, of backend IP addresses, if I want to be able to do website testing, if I want to just make sure that I can ensure that your advertisers and those crazy pixels are hiding away from you. Uh, when it comes to the fact that Privacy should be a human right. I gotta say that the folks at ExpressVPN totally get it. So make sure you jump on in. It's just this easy. So head on in and go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse and you can find out how you can get set up and get turned on in a matter of moments. In fact, you even get a cool trial. So go jump in. Again, go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash Disco Posse Huge thanks to the folks over there. All right, this is going to be a really cool one because we are featuring Evan Cumack, who's the CEO of Finn.com, and also Savannah or Savvy Peterson, who's actually the, the name and brand behind Savvy Millennial. Evan is a really dynamic human, somebody who I learned a ton from. We had a great conversation here. It was a lot of fun and we had Savvy sit in. She originally set it up. She helps them to guide on their community and go to market program. So really, really cool to see the merging of minds as we go through this discussion. Finn.com is doing some amazing stuff. I highly recommend you get in. The thing that they're doing around uh, just experience, seriously, jump in, go to Finn.com, check it out. But in the meantime, let's take a moment and enjoy Savvy Peterson and Evan Cumack. Hey, my name is Evan Kumak. I'm the CEO of Finn.com, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. This is a fun one because, Evan, I've been a consumer of much of your information. One of my favorite parts about doing these shows is that I get to do a lot of research. And you've been a prolific creator of you know, both fantastic work and also a really, really great public speaker. Uh, I'm also get the double bonus that we have Savvy Peterson here joining us as well. So we're going to cover... A lot of different stuff. We'll talk about Finn.com. We'll probably talk a little bit about the Savvy Millennial because, of course, I couldn't not let people know what the bottom third is about. Um, so, Savvy, Evan, if you want to introduce yourselves, and then we'll start with talking about what Finn.com is aiming to solve. Sure. Yeah, my name is Evan. I am the CEO of Finn. 
I joined the company, actually, I'm not a founder, which is somewhat unusual, a Series A company. I joined as CEO in December after spending the last 10 years before that uh, at Twilio, which many people will know, but we can talk a little bit about for folks who may not. Uh, Savvy is a good friend of mine who, when I joined Finn, I brought over, and I'll let her introduce herself, but brought over to help us with uh, some marketing and community building. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for having us here today. Eric and Evan, what a warm welcome to the audience. That was fantastic. As mentioned, I'm the founder and chief unicorn of Savvy Millennial. We're a community building agency for early stage startups. And right now I have the distinct pleasure of focusing on Finn. And it is such a joy to work with Evan and the team and get to know their customers better as they build out the business. But this is this is like the ultimate culmination of my favorite show. I just wish I had three hours now to be able to have both of you for a, a longer longer set because what's really important to me is the work that you're doing with Fin Analytics, Evan. And I, it's very near and dear to me. I'm in product marketing, uh, helping out sales organizations, helping out as a startup advisor, and building those early processes and teams to do things and also particularly interested in, in the community side of the world and making sure that that nurturing goes beyond just the office walls and how to make sure, you know, increase retention, increase value for folks. So Evan, why don't you tell us, you know, what Fin Analytics is doing and the challenge that you're solving so people really get a sense of how fun this is going to be. Sure. So Fin is a tool it's it's a platform of sorts for continuous workflow discovery and improvement and when i say workflow i'm talking about human workflows so things that humans are doing in front of a computer all day we are essentially instrumenting knowledge work so that you can look at data in the aggregate across a large team of people understand the workflows that are being performed understand where the strengths and weaknesses are uh, in the team, in the technology that they're using, in the tools that they have available to them, and in the actual workflow or process definitions uh, that they are carrying out. We, in our early stages, we've had a lot of success with what I would refer to as customer operations teams, teams that do things like customer support, inside sales, uh, back office customer contacts, like accounts receivable and accounts payable. So really teams that are working on heavily workflow-driven um, job types and where you tend to have more than one person doing roughly the same job. Now, the the tough part about doing, you know, running these teams is quite often you're just trying to just keep up and search out the metrics that are important to measure in growth. And they're so laser-focused on getting content out and doing audience building that it's very easy to lose track of how much inefficiencies are happening in that human workflow that can really drastically change conversions and success rates and stuff, especially like I'm speaking purely on the like digital marketing side. And I've seen this. The first thing you do is you think, oh, I need to fix this one problem. Well, there's a tool that does that really well. And then you add that to the toolkit and they're like, oh, let's connect it with Zapier to this other thing. And then we'll connect it through you know, 14 other workflow processes to another backend system. And then you get to tie it to Salesforce. And it's, yeah. I feel There's, we get the sort of tool chain problem. It's the, the fastest thing we run to is more bloody tools. <laughs> 
It's true. And, you know, it's a good thing in the sense that there is this kind of explosion of SaaS, uh, software as a service. You know, you think back to the beginning of sort of enterprise software, I guess you could say was in the 70s and uh, through the 80s and 90s, in order to to really sell successfully an enterprise software product, you would, you would be selling top down for sure. You would have a uh, sales team, you know, the IBM sales team was very famous uh, for their 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 practices and rituals. And uh, it was, you know, if you got into a company, you could essentially sell that company then all of your product line extensions. So you, a certain company might be a Microsoft shop and that would mean they would have SharePoint and they would use Office and they would use Windows and uh, it would be Microsoft everywhere. And with this explosion of SaaS, it's, it's kind of cool in the sense that now you can have two people in a dorm room come up with not just a you know social network idea, but a, an enterprise software idea, which is pretty neat. And they actually can get it in the hands of sometimes people working at very large companies. The downside of that is, I think, well, you could call it a downside. As the IT department or as someone who's leading an operations team, you may not even know uh, the full portfolio of tools that your team is using. And you certainly almost certainly don't know how they're actually using those tools to achieve different business outcomes. Uh, one thing that we see a lot with with our customers is um, they spend a lot of money on software or new software as a result of a promise from some vendor and actually find that it doesn't change the overall efficiency or the overall outcomes at all uh, for, for their team. Now, we try to focus on highlighting uh, opportunities for improvement rather than just sort of no-op uh, you know, changes that didn't do anything. But we do see that a lot. I think that's kind of testament to um, to your point there. The, just, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say to echo that, Evan, We one of the unique things that one of our community members and customers pointed out to us was everyone looks to tools to make teams work faster and to make processes faster. But that's only one way to improve margins. If you can make the user experience for the people using those tools better and make those improvements, you can have that same impact on margin. And it's working at the intersection of both those things, both the tooling and the humans allows Finn to optimize both, which is pretty powerful. Yeah, the the human optimization story is one that, you know, it's 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 so strange that there's so few people targeting this. I mean, obviously we have to look at integration and feeling back in systems and being data driven, but it's like you said, this the marriage of the two things of data driven, workflow driven, and human integration to those things. You know, sort of a famous thing was a I'll say a well known cyclist, Lance Armstrong, maybe not happily known to some people, but they created the ultimate time trial bicycle. It would it, it was the best thing ever that did in the wind tunnel test. It could potentially shave off about 30 seconds on a one hour time trial, which is the difference between getting to the Olympics and not. And for they put him out there and at the end of the hour, he was a minute longer and his hips were ravaged by a change in ergonomics. And so the scientifically best thing, in fact, wasn't the best. And they had to go back and said, okay, he was actually just better on the old bike. And this is the tooling problem of like the most optimized tool chain is only as good if the human's able to use it and leverage it and, and get all of that, that value, right? So it's, yes, I mean, 100%. And it's, it is interesting that we 
spend so much money on software and then so much money on humans. Humans are are for most companies now, you know, the the most expensive uh, resource. One thing I want to sort of touch on before we go too much further is this idea of when you say sort of optimizing humans, I think there's a negative connotation that comes up with that. And it's, it's, I just want to be clear, like the, our goal is, um, well, let's put it this way. Our customers tend to have three goals. Uh, one is actually employee happiness. Retaining employees or, or to, to flip it on its head, losing employees is extremely expensive. So even taking the sort of um, humanist, humanistic aspect out of it, people want to keep employees happy. And then, of course, customers want to do it for reasons other than that, just because of basic empathy and basic humanity. So people want employees to be to be happy the second thing is uh, they want to achieve good outcomes so if you're a if you're a consumer and i assume everyone who's listening is in some ways a consumer you know there's nothing more frustrating than when you have a let's say a customer service interaction with a company and the company has gone out of their way to make it so you can you have all this multi-channel communications and you can reach them 24 7 and they put a whole bunch of work into technology, but once you finally reach a human being, that if that person isn't actually empowered to do anything different than what you could have done yourself, uh, it's very frustrating. And so the second major goal there is kind of improving outcomes by actually understanding um, the work of the of the humans and how it maps to outcomes. And then the third is is efficiency, which is what we've really been talking about. And efficiency is an interesting one because it does actually map to happiness. Uh, everyone wants to be good at their job, and we often find that our customers will say we had, you know, we had an extraneous task that we didn't know about. So we had to find a workflow for issuing a refund or changing a flight or doing whatever it was, and there was this final step in the process that would take everyone, you know, five extra minutes or two extra minutes or thirty seconds, whatever it was. And what we now know is that it wasn't impacting outcomes. It wasn't changing NPS scores net promoter scores or or customer satisfaction and so then they'll remove that and that that creates efficiency it means that uh as a human you can get through more work in the day but it but it also makes means that you're the work that you're doing as a human is more meaningful it's more meaningful to the outcome of the business you're spending less time on tasks that perhaps could be done by software and so um yeah i want to make sure we're you know not not just talking about this from a sort of a uh, robotic uh, perspective, essentially. Yeah, no, I, I apologize. I probably took it right to an immediate problem that I face on an hourly basis. <laughs> but, but it is true, right? This is the all of that stuff is being done in service of a metric. And unfortunately, that seems like a, it's a negative connotation even when we say that. But the truth is, it's, it's generating a positive outcome for the business and for the business's customers. And it's really easy to sort of as John Dora says, not, you know, measure what matters, right? Like we 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 measure sometimes the vanity metric and then we start to build processes and optimize towards the incorrect metric. And it takes away from the happiness and, and ability to be empathetic to the consumer of whatever your services and software are. And it, it, it becomes a sort of snowball effect of, you know, just doing all the wrong things and, and then what do we do? We look and we say, well, the people are the problem or the tools are the problem. Not realizing that there was challenges in the way we were putting it together. And if we looked at the right measurement, 
then we could do that. But no one knows what that is, right? And that's which, like I said, when I look at kind of the things you're doing, not just in the technology, but also in coaching and giving it the ability for people to empower employees to to do more effective things, right? It's this is a big gap, and people just think they're going to throw another tool at it and solve that yeah. problem. Yeah. You know, another and another interesting aspect of this is like uh, measurement's not new, um, and especially when you when you think about well, everyone's measured in their job, right? I'm measured in, in my job on on sort of high level things like revenue and employee happiness and things, and but everyone everyone ultimately is is measured in their job, and in some ways, uh, you know what what Finn's technology and similar technologies do is actually bring a certain level of objectiveness. To that, uh, especially when you have people working from home, for example, you know, rather than just looking at very crude metrics like how many of a certain task did a person get through, um, you would be able to look and, and see what's the complexity of the work that they're doing, and uh, how how like are they do they have the best training? Are they doing things really well? Sometimes, you know, a lot of times customers will say, uh, "We taught everyone to to do a certain workflow in a certain way," and what we discovered is that. You know, our employees will actually show us the best way to do it, and then we can use that to go and um, uh, show others, and then that results in things like promotion and uh, people being treated the way that they they actually deserve to be uh, based on their merits. Um, but yes, it's it's uh, the whole idea is basically that people spend a whole bunch of money on software, a whole bunch of money on humans, and then when the two come together, it's like, well, we'll see what happens. They just mush them together. It's gonna, it's gotta work, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then they, and they do measure it, like you know. But it's just, it's sort of a little bit old-fashioned, I guess, in a sense, the way that we measure things typically. It's, um, you know, we don't have to do samples anymore. You can actually just measure an entire population, and you know, that's that's kind of what we've gotten used to, I guess, with cloud computing and and how we do. Um, instrumentation of software, say with a product like Datadog, it's, you, you literally understand every single thing that's happening in your in your cluster of software. You don't just sample one machine. Uh, and it's it's kind of a, a similar thing. And the, again, the idea is to, to figure out at a macro level how the team is working, can, are there improvements that can be made, are there adjustments to, to process training, so on and so forth. And, and on the in-product experience, because I know you've also do work around sort of uh, adoption and 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 feature successes and how how does that come into play because i know there's engineering teams all over the world and this is one of the biggest gaps is like well we 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 write up our bloody good user stories and we think we're good at that and then we put it in and and then we run it if we're lucky through some previews and get good feedback sessions and then we push it out to the world and then six months later, you you call it successful, but again, lack of a real true measurement of what success is 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 holding folks from building the next thing or the next capabilities with data that help, can help inform the decision. So uh, this is actually a really good opportunity to, especially for the more technical folks in the audience, kind of break down the distinction between Finn and every other product analytics um, uh, product out there. So. Um, you know, if you are the the creator of a software as a service application, or really any any web site or or web application, you you have pretty powerful tools available to you in order to understand your users. So, 
there's there's tools like uh, Heap Analytics, which which we use ourselves, and is a phenomenal product that will, you know, you can as a product maker, you can really understand how people interact with your product. What Finn does that's different is we are cross product. So um, by using the web browser itself, we are able to understand not just how a user interacts with uh, one piece of software, but actually how they interact with multiple pieces of software to get a job done. So maybe they're using a ticketing system and a knowledge base and a CRM and a, an ERP system in order to, and they may, they may consult all of those systems every time there's a request to uh, issue a refund, let's say. That's, that's always an easy example. And what Finn does is it'll actually tell you how, those, how that user interacts across all of those pieces of software, and not just that user actually, but how the entire team interacts across all those pieces of software. And so our customer is actually in that scenario, not the product desk or the Salesforce or the um, knowledge base product company. It's the enterprise that is paying for all four of those pieces of software. So it's kind of an interesting thing where if you are an enterprise and you're buying a piece of software like a SaaS application, there's a good chance that the SaaS vendor actually knows more about your users than you do. Um, and sometimes they will expose uh, like an analytics offering, but but by definition, just due to the way that the security model and, and other things work on the web, they can really only tell you about how people interact with with that one product. And there are very few sort of complex workflows in an enterprise setting that exist entirely in one product, despite the fact that Salesforce and these other vendors would love it if we used you know all of their full suite of things. It tends to be, and, and I think it's a good thing, that as an enterprise today, you can buy best and breed across the board. So you can say, I want the best and breed ticketing system. I want the best and breed CRM. I want the best and breed outreach system. And within, we'll actually be able to show you how those are being used together. Uh, the, 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 the sort of technology paradigm that enables that is because uh, we assume, and it's fairly accurate to what we see in the wild, that 99% of enterprises are doing all of this stuff in the browser now. And so you have a standard declarative syntax and sort of unencrypted, um, uh, some, it's, a, it's sort of a semantic structured way of, of introspecting user interfaces. People have tried this in the past with computer vision and various other things, never really took off, like lots of very high integration costs, um, unreliable data, lots of other challenges. But by just looking in the browser and, and asking our customers up front, what things are you interested in, we're actually able to, uh, to track cross-application. And that's, that's kind of the defining paradigm of, of Finn. And it, this is one that's near and dear to most people that are listening because this is part of the problem. As you said, Evan, it's like, you know, we've got trusted vendors and amazing partners with, you know, folks and, but they are obviously going to be opinionated in the way that they're able to deliver data insight and, and different ways to interact with their data. And they could never be as good as interacting with the adjacent system. And look, companies get acquired, we uh, buy new products. It's very easy to get outside. We'd love to say that I'm going to use one cloud and one SaaS and one CRM and life is fantastic. But uh, uh, I'm 
Yeah, I'm right. Too old to believe that that's ever <laughs> going to happen again. I've I've made a career out of proving that that's not the case, but happy to let people just believe it as as I coach them through the pain. <laughs> I mean, and I th I think you know to to the earlier discussion. Oftentimes, IT leaders won't even know the full suite of applications that's being used or how it's being used. One thing we see really often from customers is they discover how products like. Gmail and Google Docs are being used in their workflows, which they didn't understand before. And sometimes products like that could present a, a risk of, um, uh, you know, data leakage. But sometimes they'll be like, "Oh, actually, that just means we're not providing." You know, if if everyone's building their own knowledge base in a Google Doc, we should probably figure out why. Like, we should probably figure out why. You know, why our knowledge base isn't good enough. Uh, and so, yeah, I think um, the notion that you have this discrete fixed set of tools that that your employees will use is is uh people even go online to use calculators and and you know google translate and all of this kind of stuff so yeah i think those days are those days are probably for the most part over when it, it's also like i said that what i really appreciate is that you know, we, you led and and when we look at the at fin analytics as a site like those big stories are there and you see what the the ultimate goals are and then you get into and this is how we do it, right? And this is how we're differentiated. And we've come to that one. Savvy, I know this is one that will be near and dear to you of very easy to approach this as a fantastic technology solution. But if we don't glue it to a story that actually matters to the both the buyer and the user, because this is the other thing too, is that we're we're selling to the top still, you know, ultimately, but the day-to-day -day consumer that can easily become the the problem for you, you know, as a vendor, they've got to get how you're not wrecking their lives as well, right? How Absolutely. do we pull all that together? We have that conversation like every day, by the way. Let's have talk about it. Yes, it's a very hot topic at Finn and a very important topic because it all comes from transparency and communication. And the reality is there are a lot more customer service agents and frontline workers using our products than there are executives using our products. And that's the nature of how teams are distributed. So if we're not effectively communicating with our largest user base, we're really missing an opportunity for community building. It's been super enlightening and quite honestly, delightful interviewing many of our customers for voice of customer work and actually getting to see Finn video capture from users around the world and seeing not just how they learn how to work smarter and more efficiently from a process perspective together, but also learning from each other and quite literally how they handle challenging cases. And when you have a video and you're able to go back and annotate moments of crisis, for example, or moments of confusion, an anecdote becomes an actionable objective across a company and you're able to improve things and pass that message up to the product team to improve the overall user experience or whatever that is. And it's, it's so beautiful to see how literally team members will compile highlight reels of their fin clips to help co-mentor their other teams, both when they do great and also when they goof up so that other people can learn from a mistake and not make it when they move forward. We also have customers who take 
fin clips and edit them down together from longer, more constructive meetings for board updates and anecdotes like that. And there are ways to use the product not only to capture and measure overall efficiency, but to actually make the team itself more efficient. And man, it's when you see a community educating themselves on how best to use your product, it's a pretty good feeling as someone a part of the team. Yeah, I, I, I missed that uh, actually. When you know you were talking about um, Eric, like the the um, in in user like the in use experience. Let's say, um, so the individual people, the team members that whose computer this is running on, they are empowered to turn it on and off and, and that type of thing. But they're also empowered to say to annotate their workflows too. So maybe there's a particular page or a particular web form or a particular uh, piece of the process that's super cumbersome, like where there's a lot of copying and pasting involved or whatever it is. Um, they can actually you know, say to the administrators of the IT team, this part of the process sucks. So they, they can kind of do that from within the software. And then you'll see that aggregated you know, and find out where the major pain points are. So. I guess you could say, and and I realized as Savvy was talking, we, we sort of didn't really talk about like the the product functionality, but there's kind of really three 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 pillars there. One would be the aggregated aggregated data, and it, it really is like structured data. It's it's sort of um, allows you to see process execution uh, at a, at a at a structured data level. The second is clips, which which Savvy mentioned, which is the ability to zoom in on sort of any process execution and actually see what happened on screen. That's something where there's a lot of privacy involved, and so um, there's there's kind of tight controls around when that may may not be used. And then the third is is kind of what I mentioned, which is well, actually there's a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. But you know, the third would be that sort of that ability for the uh, users to take part in the in the process of uh, continuous improvement by actually human annotating their work and saying you know commenting on on what what works and what doesn't basically. Well, it, it, it's it's funny you and you. When I heard fin clips and you described it, Savvy, I was like, "Oh, we're all right. We're gonna we're gonna tap onto this one a little bit. This is neat." And you immediately jumped into something that's an interesting. I say it was a couple of years ago. I think we fought a lot harder when we heard of a thing like this going on. We're like, "Oh, my my behavior's being recorded," and it sort of throws to that, you know, just a very big brotherish feel. But I think we've reached an understanding that if it's being done for the purpose of improving my life through my function and my work, people are are good with like they know where the boundaries are, they know where the edges are, they understand. You know, there's always going to be folks that are you know they'll be a little bit worried about anything that they're being monitored on, but at the same time, like if you go on if you're going on Facebook to complain about something monitoring you, I've got bad news. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's that's a whole that's a whole uh, entirely yeah. different story. I'll actually use a customer quote to to answer this because I think one of the CEOs that we work with, Scott Moran at GoTo, sums it up really well. And the way that he introduced Finn to his team was, "I want us all to get on the same page, and I want us to turn that page together." And so his analytics as CEO are also available. The company can see how he spends his time. He doesn't record his video because that is a bit of a privacy issue in this particular circumstance. But anyone can log into Finn and see exactly how much time he's been spending on Slack or an email or in their CRM or whatever API that we're pulling from and gathering data from for them. And it's 
it, it is really about that transparency and also emphasizing catching someone in the act of doing something good. And I think that this is just a cultural thing in general. When we look at measurement, often the, the tone around it is always, I don't want to get caught, but we need to reframe that and talk about replicating top performers and showing ways where you could have really gone above and beyond. And people across the organization can see that even without you having to be your own advocate for that. So I think there's a level of equality and democratization that happens through leveraging a tool like this when it's done in a consensual, non-creepy for the greater good. <laughs> yeah. I, I, to me, the, the bigger, the biggest, um, I don't know, maybe thing to note here is this is uh, employee uh, interactions. And so this has been happening for hundreds of years. And to a certain extent, it's, I think, at least better to have this type of thing be objective, to have it be based on the truth rather than based on, um, you know, who's the loudest, who's the best advocate for themselves, as Savvy mentioned, um, who's having a beer with the boss on a Friday afternoon. It's like, okay, well, we know that, like I say, employees have been, uh, or their work at least has been observed and measured for for many, many years, going back to, time and motion studies and the industrial revolution. This is just sort of a way of making things more objective. And, um, you know, arguably, you know, I think it, if you start looking at people's real output and what they deliver, it actually gives people sometimes more freedom to with how they can spend their time. Um, so that, sure. would, that would be one thought. Yeah, And, and uh, the audience of folks that are, doing this, they're already way close to the hard part is that, you know, we may have some folks that are listening that are not specifically in process driven work, and they aren't close to teams that are doing this. And so it may seem a little bit foreign to them that this kind of work was on. But like you said, Evan, like this has it's been going on for far more than just decades. Like This is stuff that's been going on. And it's part of, like you said, I worked with folks that did like scanning of documents for a large financial services company. And it was, you know, boxes come in, it goes in, they've got SLAs, they've got all these things. And the favorite thing you can do was to go down and say, oh, hey, how's it going, Sarah? What's up? And she's like, you know, I'm like, they're just, they want to complain about what's going on. I don't get it. I've got to put the box here and I got to put the paper here and I do this thing and then I click here and then I've got to exit the system download this file, put it up here. And you're like, why do you have to do that? And that requires me going down and having a chat with Sarah to understand that that's what she's doing. And I say this, I know the names because I literally sat down all, I'm like, hey, Sarah, what's up, right? Oh, Eric, you wouldn't believe this, right? And then in taking that back to the systems team, they're like, well, why did she shut down the application? Can't you, and it now opens up the opportunity to think about how are they using the system that, the designer maybe didn't have, or the de designer didn't ha understand the impact of the total workflow. Yeah. And then, but in and, the end, uh, she's measured by an SLA. She understands that. That's just part of the deal. You know, it's if we could close the gap a little further to what you're talking about, Evan, it's massive improvement for Sarah's life, much more so than anybody else. And she'd be pretty pleased about knowing that things would get better. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I also think. It's it, just in terms of macro trends and sort of societal trends, the notion of using data to improve ourselves, I, you know, has obviously come a lot more into the fold in the last, even last 10 years with 
the Apple Watch and wearables. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm a big tennis player. I have a coach who videos me and we examine it. And, you know, it's very hard to get better at anything without sort of collecting data. I think uh, we use Fin at Fin, obviously. The investments that, that I would like to make over time would be ones where people working on more creative, um, less process-driven work also can get a lot of value out of a product like this. I would love to know, for example, how my day-to-day behaviors compare to the highest performing Series A CEO startups and are there things that I'm doing better or worse and sort of you know, benchmarking against industry. I don't see any reason that that can't be done. And in fact, you, we sort of do that every day with our our wearables and, and whatever else where we compare our, you know, we have a, a Finn uh, Whoop team, if you're familiar with with uh, Whoop wearable. <laughs> like, so we can, <laughs> but yeah, we can like look at each other and say, oh, who's doing the most, you know, who worked out the most yesterday or, or whatever it is. So I, I don't see this as, as being um, remarkably different to that in the long run. It's really just using data to get better. Yeah, something that we we almost should encourage that very thing, right? Of like, here's another example of like, you know, and make a fun part of like, you know, a real lifestyle thing that that people do. And, uh, you know, it's it's good to, to bring it together. Now, I'd say what's the, what's some of the, the biggest challenges that you kind of very rapidly see fall down as a result of early adoption of Finn, Evan, I'm curious, what are the, the quick wins that you find that people really, really dig about what you're doing? So I think the, uh, there's, there's kind of two things and, um, they're both actually like, I don't know, sales team wouldn't like either of these examples, but I think <laughs> one is, um, there's like a level of operating confidence and for anyone who's ever run a team before, you know that the there's a really horrible feeling of not knowing what's going on, and it, it impairs, I think, your ability as a leader to to make good decisions and even just to feel confident. So, I think the first thing that tends to happen is leadership all of a sudden can know what's going on, feel confident, uh, know that if they make changes, uh, if they you know pull the various levers that are available to them as an operator, that they will know what the impact of those changes are. And again, that's a one the sales team probably won't like because it's it's uh, hard to hard to sell on on sort of that 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 feeling of safety. But I do think it's actually really important. I think as an extension to that, being able to demonstrate return on investment. So one thing that we hear all the time from what you might call shared service teams or staff teams or back office teams is it's very difficult for them to actually demonstrate their uh, value to the business and how they're spending money. So you have a, let's say, a customer support team as an easy example, and all of the support reps are saying, "We need, you know, we're understaffed, we're understaffed, we're understaffed," and the team leader is put into a difficult scenario where, okay, well, we can get you more people, but why? And and how are you going to prove the value or the, the return on investment of doing that? And so that's another area where I think people get very immediate value, and. It, you know, in terms of like getting more specific than that, it, it is sort of a platform in the sense that we really will work with any any uh, web application, any SaaS application, anything that uses HTML and, and JavaScript and CSS. And so the actual specific problems that customers set out to solve can be very different from one another. Um, but one thing that does sort of come through a lot is the example that I used earlier of um, 
you know, uh, I had this conversation with a customer yesterday where they said, like, we provide pre-written uh, sample text to our, it wasn't a customer support team, but it was like a, a some sort of um, inside sales team. And like we provide them with these uh, pre-written macros, essentially, that they'll put into emails with customers. And they were running an experiment to see what would happen if they changed the macros. They're like, oh, will the macros start performing better? What they actually found is that less than 1% of people use them before the changes and less than 1% <laughs> of people use and less than 1% of people use them after the changes. And everyone actually had the, all their own macros written out that they were copying and pasting from, from other places. And so there's typically like just one big thing like that that someone finds out in the first few days uh, where it's like they've been, you know, optimizing and and sort of um, trying to like squeeze the most out of some tool that they're providing and it turns out that the team's not even using it. So there's always <laughs> something like that that comes up very quickly. And then you have customers that have used the product for years and the types of problems that they, they set out to solve can be extremely detailed uh, to the point of sort of thinking about how what the impact is of having to use additional keystrokes and things like that where it's you get into real optimization stuff. Yeah, you can really tighten the measurement once you understand where the opportunities are to be able to both measure and ultimately, hopefully, to improve. You know, it goes that I tell you that that story of of you know sales cadences and and communication cadences is hilarious because I've run into that exact thing of you know we're feeding the system and then you say like so how. You take a look and it's like none of the sales teams are using the workflows that we've defined there. And then somebody said, well, that's because they're using it because in Salesforce, you can do it natively. I'm like, you know, nobody's using the Salesforce email at all. Like they just take it from Outlook and they drag it over if you're lucky and and plug it into their their thing. I said, but let's just ask them what they bad. do, right? <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, like, I think one of the things that you would use Fin for there is to find out, okay, what are the, what is, ever, what is everyone doing on average? And then what are our highest performers doing? And right. maybe this notion that we are, maybe this box that we're trying to squeeze everyone into is actually not the right one. And, you know, maybe we should give people more degrees of freedom here, or we should encourage people to do it a specific way, but a different specific way. Yeah, I worked with one organization and their their top performing advisor basically ran his own group like a startup within the organization and the he was constantly at odds with a lot of the process folks because they'd say you, you can't do this you know you've got to use this tool and this product and use these workflows and he's like you understand we have the largest amount of assets under management as a team we have the highest customers per rep of any other team in the organization i don't think you want to reel us in i think you want to let other people see how we're doing it. And it was yeah. so funny that the the greater good wasn't actually the greater good in, in that case. And it, But the, if you don't measure, if you don't look for that opportunity, we fall into the unfortunate trap of let's just make it generic and then it's easy to map out. So you can imagine how hard that has become now with people being distributed as well. Because it's oh, like yeah. you can't even you know take those one or two super top performers and kind of like look over their shoulder. Um, so yeah, that, you know, that's been a big tailwind for us as, as we've grown, but uh, it really, yeah, a perfect yeah. example. Perfect example. It, it comes down to granularity. I think the thing that we hear most from customers early on is our granularity provided some sort of insight they didn't have before that's immediately actionable 
that has positive impact on the team or the bottom line or both or their tooling. So it's, it's the ability to really pull out the magnifying glass and understand exactly what actions drive the best performance on the team and also customer satisfaction on the outside. If, you're, if your team's happy or if those people are getting a great experience, even if the handle time is a couple seconds longer, maybe that's a process we need to adapt and see how it affects everything else. So when, what are some of your favorite aha moments that have come as a result of some of those, that first time people were like, oh my, I just realized something I can do. <laughs> I, I <laughs> we were just talking about this yesterday. I, it's, there's, there's, there's two, there's two types. There's the, there's that one I mentioned, which happens all the time, which is, oh, there's some tool that we didn't even know about and people are wasting a huge amount of time on it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I actually find, and maybe this is the sort of technologist in me a little bit, that the more granular stuff is much more interesting. So, you know, going back to the the macros example, right? Uh, a, a lot of CRMs and, and ticket uh, ticket management systems, you know, support systems, Zendesk, so on and so forth, will tell you how often macros are being used and, and how they're being used on certain um certain uh, uh, types of tickets. But within you can, and this is again, like it's not sort of out of the box, but because everything's HTML, we kind of just provide a, a syntax by which we can define any rule that you want. So any, any, anything that you're trying to figure out. And so um, we're able to, 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 to work with customers, for example, on, on the macros thing to say, how often are these being edited after they're inserted? And that's something where, um, Classically, like a, a CRM or a ticket management system won't go down to that level of detail, but for a certain customer, that may be really important. Let's say that you have um, some sort of like regulatory burden, and so it's really important that you don't say the wrong things, or it's really important that, especially when you're, we have a lot of fintech customers, it's really important you don't say the wrong thing. It's really important you do say a very specific thing. Uh, and so like being able to say, okay, how many times does this paragraph actually make its way out of this response or something like that? I, I, I tend to get more of a kick out of those more mature use cases. But I, I also understand that they're like less um, impressive on the surface. I, I know Savvy has some other examples that she likes here as well. I think I'm really delighted by the super simple fixes because they affirm that it's often not the human that's doing a bad job in any case. It's the process or the flow or the tool that's failing them or their internet connection is bad or whatever it is. And, and one of my favorites was, so it was, it was actually a customer of one of our customers and they were acting as a remote sales team for them. And they discovered the, the CEO of the company that they were supporting had asked the team to copy and paste the company logo into every single customer service email because Zendesk doesn't support logos in, in their emails. And this act was costing the team 20% of their overall team utilization. So they were able to identify this and stop doing it immediately and next day increase team utilization by 20%, which is just an incredible light switch where, oh my goodness, right? Why wouldn't we want to fix that? Also, I'm sure everyone hated copying and pasting those logos. And this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, where nobody wants to do busy work. Nobody wants to do the most boring part of their job. And if there's a way to identify that and make it easier and better for everyone, including the end customer who probably doesn't care if there's a logo in the bottom of the Zendesk email, it's a win for all. We all can work better. 
when it's wrought for opportunity for errors and individualization of those workflows, like it's very, very easy to fall. Like I used to do the, even just like a server builds and I got into automation one, cause I'm lazy and I hate <laughs> doing things over and over again. And also because I've got real problems. I would look at, I would, I would write this, the, the build doc, I would write the 42 steps to do it. And then I would skip nine of them every, I would, always end up just blasting by them because I thought I knew better. And there's nobody doing a check on me because I they're like, oh, Eric wrote the document. So obviously he's doing it right. And then if you did go back and check, you'd realize I'd missed a bunch of things. And then when I did, did process design, it was I uh, the first thing I did was said, I need someone to watch me while I do this because I'm going to do the thing that I do and I'm going to skip steps. I need you to tell me when I'm skipping them. And it was a fantastic move for me to be able to have, in that case, it was literally almost like pair programming for process building. And this it's is why I, I liked what you're doing in that you can uh, systematize some of those capabilities now to make sure yeah. that we capture it. We actually haven't really thought about that a lot in the sense of um, using the process definition to then like ensure that someone is actually following it in a certain way. There's definitely interesting use cases for that. Um, yeah, I, I myself have been part of, of teams that like, hopefully not every day, but you know, sometimes, and especially maybe like in an incident scenario or sometimes with something where the, the pressure's on, you know, you have to perform a, a series of steps via, a, you know, from a run book in a certain order. We haven't uh, we haven't thought too much about that, but that's that is interesting. One thing that that is very similar, which is a big uh, let's say market for us, or something that a lot of our customers do, is uh, figuring out which processes to automate and how to automate them. So you know, RPA, robotic process automation, is a big, big, big industry now, um, very suddenly, but it can actually be quite hard to know um, what exactly to tell those systems to do. And so folks uh, do use do use Finn for that. And my my perception of that, I guess, is that it's actually a good thing. To Savvy's point, that you have these. I, I don't. I don't. I do not believe that RPA, for example, is going to result in uh, massive layoffs of of knowledge workers. It just doesn't right. make sense. We will we will find more useful things for those people to do. Companies are not going to massively increase their margin and expect no no additional competition or anything like that. So uh, I, I do think that we will just find like more human, uh, more interesting, more competitively advantageous work for those folks to do. But if there are aspects of their job that they're doing today that are so predictable, so repetitive that they can be moved to RPA, uh, I think that's that's interesting and, and something worth worth at least looking at. And you know, with Finn, it's like you're you're not thinking about necessarily replacing an entire person. Maybe it's just like that one part of their job, which is just incredibly repetitive. Maybe it's very important that it gets done uniformly, as you mentioned. Uh, and we will actually give you like, here is the process. Here's how it gets done. And you can then go ahead and use uh, one of the many RPA tools out there to make it happen. And this also comes to the idea of the you know, and I mean, I work in a tech vendor, and we have we we have two personas: the buyer and the and the the user. You know, which we hope to be the champion. But the important thing is, you have to make sure there's this feedback loop, both from you to each of those communities, as well as between them. And it's a huge empowering thing when you can do that. So this is also savvy. You probably have a lot to 
pull into this one of where where do you really see organizational improvement because you've introduced a way in which they can feed back to you and let's say, hey, we're using Finn, we're doing this thing. And now I'm actually going to care about what my boss says or like they they interact differently now because they know they have a chance to feedback to improve the system or just to be involved in the process. Yeah, I love that you just brought that up and, and it, it touches on a little bit what I was mentioning earlier. Considering that we do, in most cases, provide video recording for our community and our customers, we actually quite literally get to see how they do this, which is which is pretty sweet. And these these teams, I, I mean, I'm happy to share in the comments of this podcast some of the links if anyone's curious. There are some really fun short clips that illustrate exactly how this happens. But because people know that a great moment or a big save is going to be captured or their goof is going to be captured they really disassociate from the super emotional part of it and it's it's like players on a sports team rather than an individual getting scolded by their mom if that makes sense and the idea is we want the whole team to work better together and everyone knows that if they goof up it, it's not something to brush under the rug it's get in front of it this is a learning moment and a teaching moment and this is an opportunity for us to, to play around with it. It's also an opportunity for us to learn how to improve the product because they will capture that feedback and the customers do bug reporting for themselves. They help us find ways to improve our product offering. And the, the interesting piece is too, I mean, to your point, yes, we're directly selling to the buyers, but Finn becomes a part of the onboarding process for new employees at most of our customers. So there is a lot of championing that needs to happen and a lot of communication around the transparency that's provided and how the tool is for good and not for menace. So yeah, it's a big part of how we think about our messaging. We're just, a, we're in the midst of a very exciting rebrand at fin.com, maybe live by the time this goes live, hopefully live. Ooh, when goes live. Nice. And as yeah, if it looks sexy when you go to fin.com, we've su we've succeeded. Uh, <laughs> and if it doesn't, well, it's coming. That said, we, we've really been talking about this messaging a lot because we want to make sure that that user knows that, A, we're thinking of them, that we don't just see them as a transactional piece of data, and that also that we're communicating to them about the true benefits of Finn so that they even know how to interface with their manager or with those executives to learn how to contribute and how to make the team more successful across the board. I can see it right now, like TikTok, but for process automation. <laughs> fin yes. <clips>. yes. <laughs> That'll be the new, you gotta have Don't a spin have out I love that. And you're talking <laughs> to the right marketing minds to make that happen. So Evan's grimacing right now. And meanwhile, I'm like- Maybe like the Gen, the Gen Z release, it's coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> so this is it also goes to, so you have a very strong technical background, Evan. So as a CEO, you're a technical CEO. Obviously there's more than just you know, tech is not your entirety of your skill set, but you are very product aware. And so when you're looking at these sort of feedback loops and then building the business as well as the platform, you know, how does your technical background influence how you kind of gauge the, the future of the organization? Um, 
It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I I was a sort of a self-taught engineer as a as a kid, and I actually have never worked as a as a software engineer in a professional city. I've always been sort of in ancillary roles, mostly product management, lots of sales engineering and solution architecture, customer facing stuff. Um, you know, I think that there's probably a couple of things there that are interesting, and and it, actually, it's it's almost like more product management, I guess, but. Um, we, we talk a lot about this internally, just sort of how do you distinguish between listening to what customers are asking for and sort of actually interpreting what customers' uh, problems are and what and, and how, like, you know, there's a real difference, obviously. You know, people will tell you they want a faster horse is sort of the old example. And yeah. I think that that's a that's probably the biggest part of it is just sort of being able to comprehend, okay, someone has a certain problem that they're trying to solve. How how timely is this problem? Is this actually a fundamental technological or business issue? Or is this just something that is a side effect of some crappy broken way that we do things right now due to the technology, right? There's um, technologies that come and go and, and they have various limitations to them, but but some of those limitations aren't fundamental. They're just sort of, you know that they will go away eventually. Um, a good example of that is, you know, we get a lot of customers that talk to us today about like, hey, you know, can we do, desktop application support and our approach to that to this day has been not really i mean we've played with it we've toyed with the idea of maybe doing sdks for net and maybe letting people pump in sort of complex analytics from their own applications but at a certain point you you have to make a bet and just say like html is everywhere it's going to be increasingly everywhere you have progressive web applications coming on various platforms you have even on ios like you know with uh with um swift ui it's not html but at least apple has has um, embraced this idea of kind of declarative user interface specification rather than building things programmatically with object-oriented right. programming so it seems as though like okay this is a bit that we're making and it's smarter for us just to focus here and you know, if there's 10% of the largest enterprise customers that um, we're not going to be able to service for the next five years, that's fine. Five years from now, we'll be way ahead of everyone else in this in this area in which we are focused. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, if you're given the choice between should I write for Salesforce or should I write for Siebel? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but it is it's really easy though. Like you know, especially uh, when you when you start hiring salespeople, um, this is an interesting topic that. Uh, I feel quite strongly about, which they do actually believe salespeople should be the advocate for the customer in an almost direct proxy manner. So if the customer is asking for Siebel, the salesperson should be asking for Siebel. They should be like banging on the desk and, and demanding Siebel support. That's, I think, actually a, a healthy uh, way for a sales team to operate. It then comes down to like, how does the product team and the engineering team actually take all of that feedback in, turn it into a, a roadmap, um, and how do you message back to the sales team to help them sell around those types of limitations? But I think trying to train a sales team to go into a customer and say, oh, don't worry about Siebel, like that's the wrong approach. The, the salesperson should be the unequivocal uh, advocate for the customer, whatever language it is that the customer is using. And then the the product team should be the one that's you know really turning that around and making decisions from it. Yeah, it's a really great point and one that we often lose that like the salesperson is is selling in both directions and and it's uh, it's a it's tough for people to get that it's not just a and if, sure if it's purely transactional and certain things are but uh, I really do appreciate that that's how you approach it because I 
I believe that's the way it should be. Like you said, you should be have people saying, look, we need this feature. And then it, you get to ask why, and then you get to get involved in the process of customer interviews. And then you say, okay, maybe through that additional discovery, you find an opportunity or you find that the opportunity wasn't there. Hey, maybe a faster horse would be just fine <laughs> right. for some people, right? There, there could be, we can give them a faster horse while we you know, develop the car. Uh, sort that, of that's true too. But I think in general, you lose fidelity if you discourage your salespeople from just bringing you like complete transparent information. Now, like, of course you want as a product leader to be talking directly to the customers and, and more importantly, like listening directly to the customers, but it's not going to scale, uh, you know, as well as th there's always going to be some aspect of bringing in feedback from, from sales too. And I just think if you try and, if you discourage or shame or, or judge like the requests that are coming in uh, to the point where they get pre-processed in, into a voice that the salespeople assume you might be more willing to hear, uh, that you lose fidelity, you make worse decisions basically. And, and as the last point I'll, I'll hit, cause I know we're coming up on time and uh, I could easily, I could go for hours chatting with both of you on, on a lot of different <laughs> things. How do you embrace challenge in that, especially when there's feedback that may not be as as a five-star review, but how do you take that through the community and then bring it back to the product and ultimately make this idea of like, be a better company, be a better you know, provider to your teams and to your customers, and then you know, ultimately embrace the customer experience to allow them to feel that they can make those comments? Um one thing I think is very important, just tell the truth. So if you don't have a feature, just tell the truth. Uh, and I think a lot of problems start when you when you don't do that. I think, you know, ha um, product market fit is a really interesting phenomenon when it happens. And, and I think that a strong indicator of product market fit is actually that customers are telling you the product doesn't do what you want. And what I mean by that is it means that you have the best product for them even though it doesn't do what they want. So, you know, when you go from, especially when you change technology paradigms, let's say you, you mentioned Siebel and Salesforce. I'm sure the first version of Salesforce had one twentieth or less of the features that like the most mature version of Siebel had, right? But it had something different, which was it ran in the browser and that was a huge, um, ran in the cloud and that was a huge thing. I'm sure all those early customers, all they did was like, I need that feature, I need that feature, <laughs> yeah. I need that feature, I need that feature. But the only reason they bought, even bother to have that conversation with you is because the thing you've done is so important to them. So you actually do have product market fit. And the way you know is because they're willing to use your product, even though it doesn't do all of those things. And so it's kind of counterintuitive. But you, one of the ways to recognize the product market fit is because all these feature requests mm -hmm. are, are so relentless. And so it may feel discouraging and it may feel like oh man we can't do anything for anyone uh, but what it's actually signifying because if you were you know some new desktop crm you would never get those questions people would just be like it doesn't do what i want and Siebel already does so screw it i'm not going to bother having that conversation right so it, yeah it feels discouraging you can feel like you're getting beaten up it can feel like you know we can't solve any problems for anyone sometimes um but there's a reason that people are asking, which is that they like something that you're doing a lot. Um, and so they're willing to to figure out like how how to make collective sacrifices and how to fit the roadmap together with with their roadmap. And, and I think like, you know, in addition to that, it's just just like I say, be honest, it doesn't do that today. Here's what we would need to 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 sort of figure out in order to make it do that. Or we don't see that as being something that 
really fits into our plan. Here's why. Here's how we plan to solve the same problem using different techniques. And just, just be very transparent. As a cherry on top of that, if you're, you know, it, it, to me, it's a little bit like PR. Any PR is good PR. Any feedback is good feedback, depending on the lens that you filter it through. And not that every piece of feedback can be actionable immediately and shouldn't necessarily deter the product roadmap. But we keep an open line of communication with all of our customers. And since we have the unique advantage of having thin clips, we do have customers regularly send in moments that their frontline team have experienced where the product could use improvement or where something maybe wasn't working as expected and or discussing something that they wish it did in that moment because of, and, and it provides us context. It's, it's, it's similar to bug reporting when you can see exactly how in the flow of something would be advantageous. It's not just hypothetically, how would this, this improvement or this release change our product trajectory and the clients that we're able to serve better. You can, you can really experience what that's like for the user and watch what that was like for them. And we have a very, fluid process of if I receive that feedback from one of our community members, it goes straight to our product team and that gets thought about for whatever's coming down in the pipeline. And we're usually able to turn around to the customer and return the favor and say, Hey, this is where we're at with this. You know, this is actually coming up really soon and, and right on point, or this is a feature that's a little bit farther down the line for us. But thanks so much for keeping the lines of communication open and keep it coming. And when it, it's kind of like when you can have a constructive conversation with your manager and feel heard, it's the exact same thing with a community member. The second they feel heard, they feel a sense of loyalty to the company because not every company is going to sit there and listen to you and actually take the time to process and apply your feedback to their trajectory. So I think it really fosters a relationship as well. Something that we should all strive to do. You know, both in our in our jobs and our platforms and in our homes, right? The same thing is it's, it's when your when your partner doesn't tell you that things are are problematic and they just suddenly just don't show up one day. <laughs> you'd you'd much rather have them say, "I think we need to talk about something." Right? This is as a customer experience, it's really no different. It's just that there's a commercial relationship wrapped around it, and it's as you said, it's empowering when they feel that they can come to you with that, and then if you listen and then bring that through. And that's one of my favorite things is to come to a customer or even to sometimes even an analyst or different people and say like, check this out. Remember that thing that you said was a real problem, like a weird thing, like three months ago, watch this, right? And and that's, it's a wonderful moment for them because then they know they actually influenced, you know, something and, and they feel like they, their voice was heard and, and it makes them put a smile on their face for a moment at least. Yeah, so, yeah you're bringing them on the journey. I think that's yeah. the difference. People, the way that I define community versus customers is a customer is a transactional relationship. It's someone who gives you money for a product or service. A community member is someone who cares about more than that transaction. And it's, by empowering advice like that and, and hearing that feedback, you foster that type of relationship. It's my favorite thing. So I, I mean, I came from the customer side for years, you know, and it even feels weird saying that phrase, but I would talk to yeah, people at an event yeah. and I'd see yeah. somebody come and they'd say, so I was talking to a prospect the other day and I'd just be, after they were done, be like, do me a favor, never, ever say that again. There's no such thing as a prospect. There's, I was speaking to somebody else in the community. Wait, like never say they're a prospect or a customer. Say they're somebody that uses your platform. Just take the transaction out of it. 
make it a human engagement for goodness sake so but anyways i'm i'm stealing extra time from you so evan savvy this has been really really fun thank you very much for folks thank that you. do want to get connected with either of you sorry we didn't talk about the savvy millennial go to savvymillennial.com make sure you spell it with two l's and two n's like i didn't do the right time the first time um but uh evan savvy what's the best way that folks can reach out to you if they want to interact yeah, feel free to email me. My email address is just uh, ecchocharlie at fin.com. Fin.com is just fin.com. Fantastic domain name. We're very fortunate. Uh, and <laughs> How did you pull that one off? You must have had friends <laughs> on the inside. <laughs> it's, uh, that story is never to be told. But uh, you know, if, you, if you're interested in the product, again, just fin.com, fin.com. Um, our handle on almost all social media is better with fin. But... Uh, you know, if you're interested in the product, come come chat directly. Let's figure it out. Absolutely. And by all means, the show was about fin.com anyway, but you're welcome to visit SavvyMillennial.com. My name is Savannah Peterson. I'm a highly Googleable person. And you can find me at Sav is Savvy on all of your favorite social channels. Eric, right. thank you so much for having us today. It's been a joy. Thank you. Can I sign us off as well? <laughs> <laughs>